Hey, everybody, this is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman, back for the 152nd Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom call. It's October 9th, uh, 2023, and this is Indigenous People's Day. We're going to have some wonderful discussion about just that, about Indigenous rights and, and the holiday. I will point out, as a historian, that Columbus Day was actually established during the New Deal. And it... <laughs> You know, we've Columbus has become quite a villain, uh, justifiably so, in our historiography. But uh, the Columbus Day was originally set up basically to honor Italian Americans who were being badly mistreated. They were kind of the, you know, the people of color at the time, and it, it was a very effective and important way of acknowledging uh, Italian Americans. And now we are making the shift. Uh, uh, Joe Biden, I believe, is the first president to officially acknowledge this as Indigenous Peoples Day. So we're going to spend much of the first hour talking uh, with some great Indigenous activists and uh, and about the nature of the holiday. And in the second hour, we're going to go in uh, to labor issues. And um, we may have Steve Donziger with us, the great uh, um, activist lawyer, uh, talk again about Indigenous issues in South America. So as always, we have a really full boat. We, we will have a, a report from Ohio as well on um, a uranium facility going on down there. Very, very important report uh, from Pat Morita in Columbus. As usual, we are loaded to the gills. We're starting with 33 people. It's great to have everybody on with us. Uh, Kat Kramer, uh, we were talking with you very briefly about your upcoming film festival. We did see uh, San Onofre Syndrome last night, Milo and I, um, in downtown Los Angeles. And that film will be available online um, uh, uh, we have Libby Halevi with us. Libby, can you tell us about putting uh, Center for Syndrome uh, coming available online for everybody? And then we're going to go to Andrea Miller uh, to introduce our ind Indigenous uh, section, and Andrea is part Cherokee. Uh, so uh, go ahead, uh, Libby, please. Hi, Harvey, and thanks for inviting me on. Uh, the film San Onofre Syndrome is just about perfect when it comes to telling the story of San Onofre, both how the activists got it shut down and then the battle since that time dealing with the waste. And it's it, uh, it won the, I believe the official title is the Grand Jury Award for Best Documentary for the Awareness Film Festival that was announced last night. What is taking place as of this Sunday is a live stream of the film. I believe it will be good for 24 to 48 hours, but it will be starting this Sunday and uh, it's available. There are links up. I can send, I will send the link. I will post it in the chat for you to be able to go, but you, that is only the first time it's going to be available because last night was the world premiere. What's going to be happening from this point forward is it's looking for places for screenings, for groups to take it on, and for any group that is involved in or close to a battle dealing with a nuclear site, this is a, this film includes not only the information about San Onofre, but it's virtually a primer as to how activists moved forward and how the steps that they took added up to initially the closure and then what followed after that. So I encourage you to do so, Harvey. I will set you up with the link. Um, I'll post it in the chat. Uh, for where people can actually purchase the tickets. 
And Levy, to do, ju do justice, you are a, a great author. You were president, present. I wish you had been president. You were president <laughs> at uh, Three Mile Island in 1979. Uh, I went in in 1980. Um, and um, uh, you have a wonderful book out um, uh, uh, called, well, what is your book called? Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. And it's a story how I went from no activism in nuclear other than being terrified in the 1950s growing up under the shadow of the bomb into Three Mile Island, ignoring things, and then from there becoming an activist again after Fukushima. And the show, nuclearhotseat.com is where the show is. I invite anybody to go there, sign up for it. It's free every week. There are more than 600 episodes. It's been going. It's in its 13th year now. And we've got Harvey on. We've had Myla Reason on. We've had just about everybody on at some point or another. And it's all searchable. So if there's any aspect of a nuclear issue that you want to know something about, go there, search it out you'll find it. And if you want to know about um, uh, a little bit more about San Onofre syndrome, SOS San Onofre syndrome, not this past week, but the week before was the episode where I interviewed the two filmmakers about what it took for them to make the film. And that's also that website has got the information on uh, how to access the live stream as well. But I will get that information specifically to Harvey so you can all have it on the chat. Yeah, put it in the chat, please. Send it to Steve Caruso as well. That's great. Alibi is a great treasure, a great activist, and uh, we're honored to have you with us. Uh, we're also honored, of course, to have uh, Andrea Miller. Um, Andrea has been um, um, a wellspring of the, the reason for these calls, actually, um, uh, because of her spectacular work with grassroots and relational organizing. But uh, she happened to mention in the... Um, the last uh, call that uh, she is part Cherokee. And um, uh, we also have Tatanka Bricka with us who works with the uh, Lakota and he'll, uh, in, in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day, he will present uh, as well. And uh, we have a couple other great guests from the Indigenous community to join us. So Andrea, five or 10 minutes, um, we would love to hear your um, your take, you know, you don't actually look Cherokee, but <laughs> maybe oh, you do. These cheekbones. Oh yeah. Okay. I have studied uh, the Cherokee are a truly admirable and important people uh, with a tremendous history. And actually, of all the indigenous um, um, identified tribes or nations left in the United States, the the Cherokee are by far the biggest. Um, uh, generally listed at around 800,000 between Oklahoma and the, and the, and the uh, Alleghenies. So um, uh, we have uh, 44 people with us to start. A very good turnout for an, an Indigenous Day a holiday. Andrea, um, uh, tell us all about being Cherokee. I'm going to do a tiny bit of history, part of what makes um, Cherokee folks such interesting people. My mother's mother, so my maternal grandmother and her great-grandmother uh, was Irish, but she married a Black Cherokee man. Now, when you look at the Cherokee people and the land where they were, which basically would be 
NSE and around North Carolina. Some moved down to Arkansas, Georgia. The Cherokee, while they were tribal in nature and had their own culture, they couldn't help mingling with, trading with, spending some time with the white settlers that were coming to the region. And one of the most interesting things about the Cherokee people was as they observed white culture around them, they began to pick up some of the white habits, some good ones and some not so good ones. So a number of Cherokee, one of the bad habits was most native tribes, you really don't hear about the impoverished and poor Indians. So there wasn't a wealthy side of the tribal nation and then the poor side. Everybody shared. It was a very cooperative society, which was one of the things that made, quote, the Indians very, very problematic. They thought the white people were crazy. Uh, my grandmother used to tell me the story of the past, and I guess this has been passed down in her family for years, where they would meet, you know, someone and they would try to figure out, are they crazy or are they sane? Are they good people or are they those people? And they would say, uh, Brave goes out and he kills two buffaloes, but he's very young and he only has a small family. He only will be able to eat one buffalo. What does he do with the other one? And for the people that were crazy, they would say, oh, he keeps both buffalo for himself. And they were like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, you just share it with everybody. And, and that was their, their sanity test. Are we dealing with a sane one of these newcomers, or is it one of the crazy ones who wants to waste food, not be neighborly, and, and help other people? And remember, the trading companies, the capitalists that arrived, were very, very threatened by people who simply wanted to share everything and not become rich. So as some became more like the white settlers who were coming into their land and became rich, those Cherokee became slaveholders. And that is one of the reasons why we have Black Cherokee. But Generally speaking, because of the tribal society where everyone had grown up, 
It wasn't, um, and again, this is according to my great-great-grandmother, it wasn't like being owned by a white plantation owner or the Cherokee. This was someone who helped with the work so they didn't have to do the work, and it was a very different kind of relationship. And when they went on the trail of tears, some of the folks who had been slaves and technically had been uh, and were not yet free chose to go with the Cherokee. And they identified as Black Cherokee. Anyway, that's the story that my grandmother told me passed down from her mother. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, the Cherokee story is quite amazing. They were one of the so-called civilized tribes. And um, Thomas Jefferson challenged them to adopt the white man's ways. And they they were a little too good at it. They 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 set up a, a government. They they had lumber mills, they had a state capital, they had a newspaper, they had a written constitution. And when Andrew Jackson tried to move them out um, in the uh, late 1820s and early and 1830s, they actually um, uh, petitioned, sued for statehood. And, um, and uh, the Chief Justice, John Marshall, who, by the way, was Thomas Jefferson's cousin, um, said, well, I can't, you, you can't have statehood, but you do have sovereignty. In other words, you can't be a state. And the reason he used was that you, the Constitution says you can't carve a state out of existing states. And they were basically in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Tennessee, right? Where were you, uh, where did you grow up, uh, uh, Andrea? Uh, well, I grew up in Chicago, but my mother's um, ancestors, as it were, they were from Tennessee. Oh, okay, yeah, Tennessee also. So. Um, uh, John Marshall said, he said, basically, you can't be a state, but you can't have casinos because the 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 decision turning down statehood granted them sovereignty, which the the tribes then turned around to say, well, if we have sovereignty, we can have we can have casinos. And they did. And that's that's why they exist. And so he drove ja Jackson, drove them out to um, uh, Oklahoma and uh, about a, about 13,000. About a quarter of them died. That was the Trail of Tears. But you know, they they took over Oklahoma and um, and and had a whole civilization there, and still do. So there you go, Andrea. It's really great to have you on with us. Very very. Is there anything else you want to say about Indigenous Peoples Day? Uh, no, I am very very pleased that we now have a holiday where. For so much of history, it was what could people do to make us disappear? And we always had the adage, well, yeah, but, you know, Indians, the red and the black people, they're just, you know, something above the animals living here. And when you look at some of the dwellings of the Cherokee, the original dwellings, 
there was no glass, so they didn't have windows. But when you look at the original dwellings, it's like, you know, if that thing had windows, I'd live in it. Right. Well, they were, the Cherokee were phenomenally uh, advanced, like the Iroquois. And, um, um, you know, the guys, they had them leave in, in part because gold was found in the hills. And um, and even more valuable than the yes. gold, actually, was the trees um, uh, that, that were being, you know, the timber. And um, and so Jackson, liar that he was, he Andrew Jackson enlisted the Cherokee to fight for him against uh, the southern tribes, the more southern tribes, Choctaw, Chickasaw. And promised them that he would, you know, care for them. And then he immediately broke his promise and treated them just like the tribes that he had defeated. He's a horrible man, Andrew Jackson. Terrible guy. Yes. Um, okay. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, Har Harvey and Andrew. Does he remind I, you of anybody? <laughs> excuse me. Um, I want to hey. uh, say hello to Andrea and um, and Harvey and welcome Anna Rondon who's been here for a few minutes. And uh, she is a project director with the New Mexico Social Justice and Equity Institute. And I'm getting some feedback. Uh, is she, I don't see her in the- um... oh, Well, she oh, is. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. there she is. Yeah. I, yeah. Wanna, I, wanna, I just unmuted her, I hope. We also have Pat Morita from Ohio. Pat, we are gonna want to, I uh, look at your fabulous slideshow. We are gonna want to talk about the weapons complex in Southern Ohio. Uh, and Milo's going to bring us another guest. Uh, Ruth Strauss, did you want to ask a question real quick before we... Yeah, I just, uh, a quick statement. I grew up in Alabama and Andrea, I, you know, as racist as that place is, the Cherokee were lauded in our, you know, like sixth grade history books, you know, go figure. It was just kind of interesting. But I, the one thing I wanted to ask you is I had this panic today that I needed to be phone banking with Center for Common Ground. And then I looked it up and the election is in November 4th. Is there something that I need to do today or can I procrastinate a little bit more? Well, you can procrastinate a little bit more. I'm going to drop a link in the chat. And we have phone bank training every Tuesday. And I'll put that on, on Tuesday from uh, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And you can sign up on that link. We also have training on Wednesday from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. And that will go on until November. Thank Perfect. you. Thanks. And, uh, and thank you for that. Um, uh, Randolph Shannon, very astutely in the chat, pointed out that when John Marshall's excuse for not giving the Cherokee statehood was that the Constitution says you can't create a state out of an existing state. But in the Civil War, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, lawyer that he was, found a way to make West Virginia a state gouged out of Virginia. So, uh, you know, it, it, somehow the law didn't apply, um, although he did this, have the slight excuse that there was a civil war going on. But at any rate, um, so... Uh, uh, that we should try again. I think the Cherokees should try again to get statehood. That would be great. Um, okay, so 
Uh, we're joined by the great Dennis Bernstein, uh, uh, host of Flashpoints at KPFA. Uh, John Steiner is with us. Um, um, and Pat, we're gonna, Pat Mariah, we're going to get to you in a bit. Uh, Myla, why don't you introduce Anna Rondon? And, um, and uh, let's hear her perspectives on Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, Anna, I, we're just so delighted that you can join us. Um, you, we, are, we are connected to you through my uh, dear colleague, uh, uh, Demacio Lopez, who we'll, we're expecting at any moment now. Um, but if you could just go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, I was kind of hoping that you might have something to say about uh, uranium mining um, and uh, and other projects that you're you're working uh, with. Let me uh, share the page here. Do you can you see? Can uh, can everybody see the uh, your website? And you are you are living uh, Anna working on Diné, Zuni, and Acoma lands in the in North South. Sorry, uh, New Mexico. And uh, our listeners can't see it in on radio land, but uh, we're looking at oh. some very beautiful desert landscape. Uh, Anna, do you want to introduce yourself and give us ten minutes yeah. on Indigenous Peoples Day? Yeah, greetings, y'all, hey, everyone. Uh, this is kind of like impromptu, but I really appreciate these spaces, uh, especially today in celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day that was born thousands of years ago, which is every day, all of us are Indigenous. Uh, I just learned that before people started popping over here from the other side, they were victimized as well by Christianity. And what you're talking about earlier is a great conversation on why all these mother so-called <laughs> justices don't do justice is because of the doctrine of discovery. And that still plagues us today as a license to kill people that were natural with the world and with the universe. So in learning that, now I know why folks that came from over there are so fucked up is because they were, you know, Christianized for 2,000 years before us. So uh, now real quick, this is going to be a radio broadcast, so we're going to try to oh. keep keep oh. some of those. Okay. But okay. but you're you're a, I second I Thanks second those me. emotions. No, I second okay. those emotions. Okay. okay, go ahead. Thank you. Okay. I always tell my kids, don't say the F bomb, but here I go. But anyway, so the doctrine of discovery, you know, I know that the Pope repudicated, which means they stepped away from it, but they didn't denounce it. But for us, it opens the door for the legitimacy of all the 500, over 500 years of Christianity in the Western Hemisphere and Africa where it started the doctrine of discovery in 1453. Um, and so knowing that we have to know the history, everyone's history. That way, no one can say, you're not going to, you, you can't be like us, so we're going to teach you 
through boarding school. And now we know what that has done in unearthing, in unearthing of our babies, of the bodies of our children that are still being discovered. So truth is really powerful, especially in the spiritual realm where we've been fighting this battle of spiritual war beyond us. But that's why we're here, is to create beauty. We are creators. We can help others live in a better way of life. That's our purpose, and that's why we fight against the nuclear beast and the capitalism, the many monsters, the heads of many monsters that we all deal with on a daily basis. It's time that we are not victimized as indigenous peoples. We thrive today. We thrive around the world. And we've never forgotten our holy people and, are the, and the original teachings where I can share that the white people, where they live, they took care of the fire. And uh, the Asianic people are re responsible for the air. And the African-American people are responsible for the water. Indigenous peoples, as you know, are responsible for the earth. Those were the original teachings. That's why I say we're all indigenous. You cannot have that superiority complex of better than less than uh-uh hell no no mofo way <laughs> you know what i'm saying no you more you got it you we're got equal. it we're equal there's no olympics and having who was the most tortured the most genocide we all know the truth now is time to teaching our next generations and the ones now well, thank you for beauty. that. So anyway, no nukes. No, no nukes. As my kids used to say at the Laguna Indigenous Uranium Forum, they would say, no more nuki. <laughs> but anyway, that's a different topic. But thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's wonderful to have you with us. We really appreciate it. And um, <clears throat> the historian in me can't resist pointing out the practice of scalping, which was blamed on the indigenous by the white settlers here, actually was used by Oliver Cromwell in Ireland and Scotland when the Puritans took over England and conquered Ireland and Scotland. They they scalped uh, the local people, and um, and uh, the Dutch traders uh, may may have been the ones who introduced it to North America. It was not, scalping was not an indigenous, an indigenous practice. So I did want to point that out, please. Um, let's go um, to Tonka Bricka. Um, since we, yeah, and then we'll go to Pat Morita to tell us about the situation in, uh, in Southern Ohio with the uranium uh, uh, there because it's so relevant to the indigenous um, um, disasters in, in New Mexico. At Tatanka, you embody both the Italian and the indigenous 
uh, <laughs> um, uh, aspects of this day. We have 61 people waiting to hear your wisdom. So give us five or 10 minutes. It'd be great. Yeah, I'll probably end up taking 10 because I want to talk a little about Leonard Peltier as well. Oh, yes. Leonard Peltier. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I have uh, European heritage of Italian and Dutch and Scotch. And I have some Nez Pierce through my grandfather, my mom's dad. I'll tell you about that in a bit. Um, but I was in brief contact with Chase Iron Eyes um, on Pine Ridge today, earlier today, and uh, did invite him to come on board if he could. Um, very busy day for him. They're doing their own ceremony. So he sends his greetings. I think he was on here, Harvey, about a couple of yeah. years ago. I invited yeah, him on. He was. Thanks, and, Steve. Uh, Appreciate it. Yeah, he's looking forward to getting back. So we will we will schedule that. There's a lot he has to say about what's happening, but he sends his blessings. And um, I would just uh, like to just for a moment, take all of us take a breath and uh, acknowledge that we all live on stolen land from wherever we're zooming in on Turtle Island. And that I'll say a few words just of invocation. Creator, this is Buffalo Waves in the Breeze, Tatanka, here with our circle, with our Greek group, whatever we call ourselves now, working on these issues that to heal with Mother Earth. And I want to acknowledge also the sky beings among us. Most of our tribes here on Turtle Island also have stories about. Um, coming here from different star systems. And as we know, these beings are among us. And so in addition to our consciousness, allowing for, as Anna was speaking so eloquently earlier, we're all equal with everyone uh, who is claiming their earth origin. Uh, there are many of us that do claim a star origin as well. And um, so that's that's a topic for another time, but we're part of a larger neighborhood here. And so we ask for your wisdom in helping us make this transition, that we're not alone, and there are others among us, some of whom are willing to help us, and um, also to take responsibility for the U.S. taxes that has gone in to uh, bring those ships down to study the 70 plus 80 quote we call them races of of ets and to effectively reverse engineer at least some of the technology and militarize it which actually could be free energy for the whole earth so that's for another day we ask your guidance on that and in addition to the four directions i'll do very quickly um in our ways um with Sun Bear, uh, we call in the powers of the north and the place of the air, the place of the animals and the receiving energy, that incredible receiving power that animals give us, welcome powers of the north. We bring in and call in the powers of the south, the place of the plant world and the waters and our emotions, emotions, energy in motion. And we're here to script a new narrative of what human family can do here. So we call on the sacred plants and the sacred waters to help us with that. 
welcome. They call on the powers of the West, the place of Mother Earth, Idaho, sun come down the mountain, the place where holding and transforming energy happens, the place of death and change, and all the healing that we need to do with the mineral world. Keep it in the ground. Welcome powers of the West. And I call in the powers of the East, Grandfather's son, who shines down on Grandmother Earth every day. And the creator kept that star, you know, 193 million miles away from us for good reasons, so that we could enjoy life here. So let's not get too quick to try to recreate that technology and blow ourselves up. Welcome this human world where we de determining energy, we determine with our free will. Welcome powers of the East. And I call on the powers of the center of this gathering, the place between the as above and so below, the place of the catalyzing energy of the void of the not yet. It's a sacred place to be at home with not yet. And we acknowledge that there is a super saturated solution full of hate and fear that is ready to break. And we don't know what incident it will take, but we are the people and the people will rise around any particular incident and know our power. And this future that seems so dismal will open ways for us to survive yet another day and perhaps seven and seven times seven times seven generations. Aho. Thank you. Do I have a minute left? <laughs> yes, a minute. Yes, indeed. And you have um, 63 people on board. So give us okay. another minute, please. And then we're going to. Hey, I, I just want to bring. Um, I think we all know who Leonard Peltier is. I just want to bring. Yes. I want to bring in some. some uh, I had to look this up because I remember the journalist that interviewed him. Um, some things he said about himself that I think are important. It was uh, Kevin McKiernan who was in Pine Ridge. I've been on Pine Ridge twice. Um, so he asked him, uh, uh, let's see, what, what is your ancestry? So this is Leonard speaking. My father was from Turtle Mountain Chippewa Nation in North Dakota. My mother is Dakota, the people of white corn, from what is now called Spirit Lake. We were farmers, and my grandfather was actually from Mankato, Minnesota. After the Little Crow War in the 1860s, they hung 38 Indians in Mankato, the largest hanging in the United States. One of them was my great-grandmother's brother, White Dog. There were 300-something indicted, and they had 10-minute trials, 10 at a time. Abraham Lincoln was going to execute everybody, but his aide sent him numerous memos, and this is all on the record, telling him if they killed all those people, he'd be known as a mass murderer, so he stopped at 40. Two escaped to Canada, and 38 were hung. And he was asked, did you know all this history when you grew up? Yes, I used to sit around and listen to my elders talking. I was born in 1944, and I grew up in apartheid conditions. A candy bar was a rarity, and meat in the table wasn't a regular thing. We had to have a written pass to leave the reservation, even to go shopping or bordering towns. The media was doing major articles calling us 
the vanishing American Indians. And by 1985, the quote, termination act was going to be completed and we would no longer exist. They were implementing the assimilation policies to take the Indian out of being Indian through the boarding schools, which have a horrific history. I was one in one of those schools from nine to 13 years old. And then he talks about the everything, you know, his whole trial, uh, the woman who said she identified him, of course, recounted her testimony, said she was pressured, pressured. His health situation is still critical. Uh, his next date for uh, to possibly be released is next year. Uh, there was a demonstration out in front of the Biden administration that was uh, led by um, Raul Gravaldo, Gavarajo, I believe, and um, also AOC and Bernie and Ilhan Omar, um, just calling for his release now. We're aware that no president of the United States, Clinton got close, and you know 500 FBI agents showed up in front of the White House, and he was uh, convinced by... Uh, Basically, there's uh, another story we can go in with a whole co cooperation of the White House with certain um, co-opted parts of the uh, Indian nation that was opposed to AIM, the American Indian movement. Um, Obama supposedly got close. He got backed off. We pray that there is some president that will have the cojones to do the right thing, no matter what the pressure is. But to to know what that pressure is, is important. So we'll do that in a later show. It's important for us to understand the fascism in that and that the absolute fear that certain elements have of Leonard and people representing the truth of the American Indian movement being free. So I'll leave it at that for now. Aho, thank you so much for that, uh, Tatanka. And uh, Leonard Peltier's case, really, we should link, um, and maybe we'll do it next week, to the a Julian Assange case. Uh, this is outrageous. It's in, you know, I can't even begin to tell, say how outrageous it is. If people Leonard, want, I just will say, I meant to say, the, the group itself is called Goons, G-O-O-N-S, Guardians of the Old Lala Nation. And um, it's something to, most people haven't researched that. Thank you, Tatanka. I want to. We're, uh, I want to go. Um, and Wendy, if you could wait a couple minutes, uh, please. Uh, I do want to uh, have uh, Pat Marida, um, uh, Demacio. You're with us uh, for the rest of the hour. Uh, I hope. I want to. Uh, uh, Pat Marida, uh, our sister in Ohio, has some. You know, Ohio seems to be the, the where stuff starts in this country, and she has been working. Pat's a great activist. We've known each other for decades. And uh, Pat, if you can give us a 10-minute report on what's happening at Portsmouth, Ohio, because they're moving ahead with the plague of nuclear weapons and power uh, in which so many first uh, peoples have died in the uranium mines and uh, the Trinity test and all the other stuff. And a lot of that has roots in Ohio where they're actually wanting to expand it. Pat Morita, could you give us 10 minutes on on what's going on at Portsmouth, please, and then we'll go to Demacio. And um, uh, Aaron, you're with us to talk labor. I hope you can stay through. As you can see, we're in uh, uh, amidst about 20, 30 more minutes on the indigenous. And if you can update us on the strikes, that will be wonderful. Go ahead, Pat. And then I see Dennis Bernstein wants to get a word in. So as soon as you're done, I'll get him. 
Okay, well, well, thank you so much for having me, Harvey. And uh, uh, I am uh, one of the coordinators with the Ohio Nuclear Free Network. And I have put uh, a slideshow on, if anybody cares to, uh, I won't exactly follow it, but somewhat today, uh, because it has a lot more information than I'm able to talk about today. But we are um, on the internet at onfn.org for Ohio Nuclear Free Network. It's as simple as that. And uh, I'll put my uh, email in, in the chat too in a little bit, and you can contact me if you have any questions. And I've uh, seen the slideshow. Her slideshow is fabulous. It's really worth downloading. We're not going to show it on here because we're in radio, but um, uh, the, it's very worth worthwhile what her slideshow tells us about the a uranium industry. So go ahead, Pat. So I do want to make that connection. Uh, three things to stress when I talk about nuclear issues is to make the connection between the weapons and the power, because, you know, the funding, the technology, education, research, infrastructure, and so much more all overlap. And of course, they compromise the safety in order to get this, in order to have nuclear power at all. So, and then the second thing to remember is that from now on, in particular, the taxpayers are going to pay for all of nuclear because Wall Street won't touch it. So all these nuclear power things that are going on, whether it's power and weapons overlap or whatever it is, it's going to be paid for by you and me. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> okay, um, so so at Portsmouth we have the enrichment facility. And they're now talking about expanding it, even while they're talking about cleaning it up. Is that right? So they're trying to do both and they want to reuse it, everything at the site. So the, the, the third thing I want to talk about is like countering the big lie, because we've all heard that nuclear power produces no carbon and zero emissions. So uh, in connection, particularly with the Native Americans, uh, we have on our website as well, uh, all about the front end of nuclear power, which is most of you probably understand, but the American public really doesn't, is the uranium mining and milling uh, and enrichment, which is what which is what goes on at Piketon, uh, at the Portsmouth nuclear site that I'm gonna talk about. All of that is done, the mining and the milling is done on Native American land. And they've done it on land that has been supposedly, you know, given to these people uh, for their for the homeland. And yet they've been uh, tricked in one way or another into getting these mines and mills on their land. Uh, and then the middle part, the new reactors, they're completely subsidized. And then how there's a lot of um, energy that goes into making a new reactor. So that's not carbon free. And how much carbon and how much energy is going to be used to try to isolate the waste for you know the next <laughs> however um, million years or so. Um, and on our website, we do have a whole list of a whole lot of, um, uh, on the slideshow too, a number of industries in the front end. So down at, at the Portsmouth nuclear site. And then you've been asked, where is it? Portsmouth is at the bottom of Ohio. If you look at a map of Ohio, the, the protrusion on the bottom uh, where uh, along the Ohio River, 
that is Portsmouth, Ohio, and the next county up is Piketon, where these facilities are. So go ahead. Yeah, and so the so Piketon, Ohio, is actually the site of it, as Harvey has said, uh, and they have a an acronym for it called PORTS. So I sometimes refer to it as PORTS, and sometimes people refer to it as Piketon. So it gets really confusing really quickly. But for these purposes, we'll talk about Portsmouth and PORTS. So um, the site's nearly 4,000 acres it, of the original plant for uranium enrichment used as much electricity as the city of New York. Uh, it covered, the buildings themselves covered over 100 acres. And the worst thing that happened there, besides just enriching the uranium, was that they brought in high-level radioactive waste and they ran it through all the process buildings. So the entire site is, is contaminated with transuranics, plutonium, um, uh, and americium, and, uh, and uh, um, uh, particularly a lot of technetium. Uh, and now all of that is, of course, going off of the site, even more so as they dismantle it. So, okay, I'll go through. There's four major things that are happening there right now. Okay, and go ahead, Pat. So the first is new uranium enrichment. And you probably you may know that Centris is building, uh, you may have heard of HALO, high assay low enriched uranium. Centris, they're building centrifuges. This is a new enrichment process. And enrichment increases the amount of fissionable or, or, or explodable, I guess you could say, um, a uranium in there in order to make a bomb. So this is gonna make up to 25%. That alone could make a dirty bomb. They are saying that it's 19.75% that they're going to actually have. That's way too, I want to say, way too precise a figure. But the reason they're saying 19.75% is because at 20%, they, it cannot be exported. And they want to export this around and they want to get other countries involved in making uh, nuclear, in building nuclear power so that they can, so that the United States can get them to be allies. And this Halo fuel is also proposed uh, for small battlefield reactors, if y'all can believe that. And um, they did this, the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, okayed this new process without doing the required environmental impact statement. So our organization uh, took them to court about this, but we lost that. And the second thing that's going on there is a new depleted uranium process. Now, depleted uranium is what's left over from uranium enrichment. It has less fissionable uranium, but it's just as radioactive. So, well, now, instead of being waste, of course, it's useful because it's going to be used in nuclear weapons. Uh, and that can be used, in, it's not bombs, but it's shells and tanks. And um, you may have heard about this depleted uranium being used in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and the former Yugoslavia. And now these weapons are being used uh, in Ukraine by the US and UK, and quite likely by, by Russia as well. Um, okay. And so 
then this is a little more on the speculative side because it depends on whether they get as much funding as they would really like. But two new reactors are proposed down there. And so they got a, they've already gotten a $5 million grant to start this. And uh, a company called Oklo is uh, promising or planning so, to build a sodium-cooled fast reactor down, two of them down there. And those plans, um, they'd like to, in also, they, there are plans down there for enriching uh, uranium and, and fabricating uranium for, for the fuel, <laughs> fabricating, which is something that's never been done there, is fabricating fuel. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, but back in 2022, the the Nuclear Regulatory Commission actually denied Oklo's license application for this new reactor. So, and, uh, Pat, to, to wrap up real quick, uh, the Piketon Portsmouth facility right now is pretty much at the heart of the continuation of nuclear power and nuclear weapons. And Steve, could you put up that quote again? Uh, those of you who have heard from apologists for nuclear power. And Piketon is at the center of this because Piketon has been both a military and a civilian facility and still is. And if you look at the quote here in purple, uh, French Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron in 2020 at um, Le, Le, Le Crusoe uh, facility in France said, quote, and never forget this, because and Portsmouth, which Pat is talking about is the epitome of this. Without, new, without civilian nuclear energy, there is no military use of this technology. And without military use, there is no civilian nuclear energy. And Portsmouth Piketon, where Pat is working, is the epitome of that confluence. Pat, can you wrap up in a minute and tell us what, what, how to get in touch with what you, need, what we need to know? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll put my contact information uh, there, and I'll also remind people of the website and remind people, too, that, well, and, and let people know there's a big hydrogen facility. They're hoping to get a part of the $9.5 billion hydrogen subsidies that are, are being promised, uh, and that's a, that's just a dead end for sure down there. It's an abomination. And the Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you, Pat, for your Thanks great so work. Much. And keep us posted. And your slideshow is spectacular. So anybody who wants to pursue this, please look at the slideshow. I believe that Portsmouth and Piketon were uh, not so long ago Miami and Shawnee land. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and this was the stomping ground. Southern Ohio was the stomping grounds of one of the great indigenous leaders, Tecumseh, uh, who uh, in the War of 1812 tried to unify the tribes and pushed the whites out, uh, didn't succeed, but he was as powerful an indigenous leader as we've ever known. Um, Slago, uh, Pat, you're our own you're our own, yeah, hold on, Mike. You're our own reincarnation of Tecumseh. So thank, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Uh, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, Libby has to leave in a few minutes. So if you want to have a final word from her, you got like two minutes to get her in. Well, okay, we got to get to Damasio. Uh, Libby, did you want to wrap up? And then we're going to move to, to Damasio and we'll also go to Wendy and Rick and Monica. But go ahead, Libby, and then um, uh, uh, Damasio. 
Thank you. Uh, two things. First of all, in terms of Portsmouth Plankton, uh, this week on Nuclear Hot Seat, my big interview is with Dr. Michael Ketterer, who is the person who discovered so much about the radiation that has taken place down there. And he does speak specifically about Portsmouth Piketon and some other issues as well. The other thing is that, and Damasio, I know, will be going into this, is that we're working together for the International Uranium Film Festival, which will be coming to the United States in 2024. We are still looking for venues. We are looking for on-the-ground groups or producers that can help us bring this to fruition. We need to come up with funding for it. There's a lot, but people can do this. And one of the goals is to curate the films that are shown in each location to coordinate with whatever the local issues are that people are dealing with in that area and to have an event in addition to um, the film festival itself. So we work synergistically to build public response. And that's part of the goal in 2024. Thank you so much. And I, I want to point out that Mary Beth Brangan has joined us and um, uh, the, the um, co-maker of the great films, Sandrofi uh, 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 Syndrome. And uh, I do want to uh, get to her after we hear from Damasio. But before we do that, uh, very quickly, Damasio, I want to introduce you to someone very important that you need to know, uh, Dennis Bernstein. Dennis, um, um, if you can show yourself, Dennis is the great host of the Flashpoint show on KPFA in Berkeley. Uh, if we can uh, uh, unmute uh, Dennis. Is Dennis, are you with us? Uh, Dennis Bernstein, are you not I with I am with you. Okay, bro, let's go for it. Uh, Dennis and meet Damasio. Hello, uh, Damasio. Hello, <laughs> Dennis. Oh, I can't, I can't see your face. Okay, I, okay. Oh, there you are. That's why I do radio. <laughs> Dennis, has, I know Dennis very well. He has a great face. Uh, I, I love radio. It leaves <laughs> a lot to the imagination. As opposed to you, Damasio, who's got a really distinctive uh, a beard. And, and But go ahead, Dennis. Uh, uh, say what you got to Damasio, and then we're going to give the floor to Damasio. <clears throat> and then Jim and Mary Beth are with us from the uh, San Jose Center. But go ahead. Is it me? Yes, me? Dennis, please. Oh, okay. So I... We're talking about Indigenous Peoples Day. By the way, we were uh, at Alcatraz for the sunrise uh, ceremonies this morning. And if you tune into Flashpoints at 5 Pacific, you can hear uh, some of the things that were going on as Alcatraz once again was freed uh, by the Indigenous communities. Um, a number of the, uh, of the Indigenous people, Indian people that I've been working with, uh, particularly in the last 48 hours, have their eyes focused on what's going on in the Middle East and what's going on in the indigenous communities there, the indigenous communities of Palestine. Um, it's I'm not going to get into the whole politic of it, uh, but I'm just going to say there's already been one slaughter, but there there's a big one about to happen and the Palestinian people, once again, are going to be slaughtered. Um, uh, and the world is not going to be watching. Uh, I'm very worried uh, about what has already happened, the extraordinary suffering that's already occurred as a result of the fact that in 1948, after a bunch of fascist Europeans tried to wipe out 
the Jews, the West decided that the Jews needed a place. And so they would, what they would do is they would get rid of the, move over the Palestinians uh, and give the Jews most of Palestine. And it's been an extraordinary problem ever since. And the suffering in the Palestinian community is about to go tenfold. So I want to say in Indigenous Peoples Day that Palestinians belong in Palestine and they don't need to be ethnically cleansed because of a maniac action and because of the horrific stuff that has been carried out in the last couple of days. That's what I have to say about uh, Indigenous you, Peoples Day. Uh, our, our hearts are certainly with the people of of that region and um, God help us all it's just, to have that going on at the same time as the uh, nightmare in Ukraine. Uh, you wonder if uh, if the theory of evolution actually applies to our species, but thank you very much for that, Dennis. Uh, Dimashio has been waiting. Uh, Dimashio, um, we've got 65 people with us. And uh, that when you're, when, if you can give us 10 minutes, we're definitely gonna go into the second hour here. Uh, I wanna thank Aaron uh, from the labor movement. We do wanna talk in the second hour about, about labor and the incredible uprising of strikes going on in this country now. It's truly amazing. But we are gonna slip into the second hour. We have Dorothy Reich with us, Wendy, Rick, and Monica, but uh, you're the man right now, Damasio. Um, uh, uh, do you wanna be introduced uh, uh, by Myla Reeson? Uh, Myla, did you wanna say a couple quick words about Damasio or you just wanna rock and roll? Oh, oh, sure. Well, let me just say that I'm so pleased to have reconnected with Damasio. Um, I first learned about uh, uranium weapons. We were calling them depleted uranium weapons at the time, way back uh, in the 1990s. And, uh, and Damasio and I uh, traveled to uh, Mexico with Pia Gallegos to try to uh, warn the Mexican legislature about the waste isolation pilot plant, uh, which is a dump for plutonium contaminated nuclear weapons waste uh, that opened in 1999 and, uh, and failed. Uh, 9,985 years ahead of schedule when uh, on Valentine's Day in 2014, uh, plutonium was uh, uh, sent up through the shafts uh, from the, the burial site a quarter of a mile below the surface and propelled into the accessible environment. Uh, the, the amount of uh, plutonium con contamination was never tracked. Um, and uh, anyway, I'm really, really pleased to see you with us here, Damasio. And um, uh, I know there's thank much you. more to say about you, but um, I just want to say thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Damasio. We're glad to have you with us. And please go ahead. Okay. Myla, I haven't seen you in probably 20, 25 years. Uh, a few years ago, I... I thought maybe I had already done all my work on on this depleted uranium issue, and I run off to Costa Rica for 17 years and got lost. <laughs> and I just came back in the last three or four years and come to and just recently uh, the Ukraine war broke out, and then I thought, well, I need to get back in back in shape here and 
take on this issue and I can't uh, just leave it alone. And what happened was Norberg Schuschner, Schuschnick from uh, Brazil, uh, who is the who, who is the, the 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 secretary general of well, he's the director of the International Uranium Film Festival. Uh, I saw him uh, about four months ago in in Brazil. I went to their uh, annual uh, uh, Uranium Film Festival there, and while I was there, uh, we talked about doing a a tour here in the United States, a, a film tour. I had done this before back in 2013, but I just went to three different sites. And then I had also uh, had a tour in uh, where I where I was the guy where I was the guy who was a host in uh, in Brazil. I went through about seven, eight cities. But anyway, I've done this kind of work before. And and so when I saw him a few months ago, he said he wanted to have this uh, uh, tour here in the United States. And I thought about it. And and I finally I went ahead and committed myself and i told him i would i would help him and he appointed me as uh southwest uh, uranium film festival director of the united states and take that very seriously and uh what i did is i went to work right away and uh this was uh about three months ago and and i started thinking about the plans and how i was going to go about it and what what uh cities we would want to have on this uh tour we're talking about a a tour where we take films to different communities and show these films, and we try to find uh, people in those communities in those areas who are filmmakers. So we don't just go looking for the top filmmakers around. And even though we have more than three hundred uh, films in in our library, we look for films that are made locally. And and we try and what we do is we 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 find a community who wants who wants to have these films. We go there uh, or we communicate with them and we make decisions on what to do and try to make it as easy as possible for these communities to have these films without having to go through a lot of big expense. I'm talking about you know like really uh, very we're we're a nonprofit. And the only monies uh, that our organization gets is, is contributions when the when the filming is over with. Uh, during get going up to the filming itself, we have a partnership with the communities where they they set up the 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 theater and make sure that and do the advertisement and uh, and then do have the volunteers there. And then we, I, I'm the one basically that sets these things up along with Norberg, who is uh, our director. And uh, so once we once we have people who are, or places that want to have this film, we go ahead and interact with them and then find a date and then go there and show the films. And when we go there and show them, we don't just take our films and say, oh, we're gonna show you these films. What we do is we say, we have these films. And if you have films, filmmakers in your local area, we want to see them. And I'm sure the people in the areas want to see them too. So here's what we've done so far. So, you know, we haven't wasted our time. Uh, we're looking for nuclear films. And uh, we're looking for 
where uh, for filmmakers from local communities, we're not necessarily looking for looking trying to go out and look for professional filmmakers, which we we use their films as well too. But we want to see what local local filmmakers are doing in their areas. Uh, here's here's the kind. We we've already begun to to look for uh, sites and people and cities and towns that want this. And here's what we got for this coming year. This is we we, we plan to have our have our schedule during March and April, and we plan to start in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And these are these are not solid, but we have already made contacts with people in these communities. They say they want the film, and right now we're negotiating with them to get get these films there and get the dates. But here's here's a list that I have as of today. And these are, and we've only have five confirmed uh, sites, and we have eleven unconfirmed. Unconfirmed means we're in the process of doing this, of of, of setting up the the actual screening. We start on and and uh, this and these dates and 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 places okay. that I'm going to mention aren't necessarily uh, done already. These these okay. are things working on i can tell you the ones where we have five confirmed but we start in albuquerque that's confirmed window uh, albuquerque in march 5 6 window rock in march 9 10 that's confirmed uh, and then tucson march 13th and 14th and santa fe on the 16th and 17th which is confirmed asheville north carolina on march 23 24 which is confirmed and then we go to washington dc after that and then to Seattle in April 13th and 14th, Vancouver, uh, April 17th and 18th, Los Angeles, April 24, 25, Las Vegas, 27, 28. And then in Hawaii, we'll probably go there in probably uh, April or May. Then Johnson City, Tennessee, Jonesboro, Tennessee, Santa Barbara, California, Portland, Oregon, and Norwalk, California. Well, These that's impressive. That's, that's very impressive. impressive. I want to introduce you um, to uh, two very impressive fil filmmakers that are on with us. I don't know if you know them already. Uh, uh, Mary Beth Brangan and Jim Heddle. Jim and Mary Beth, say hi. Um, they, they, we saw their film hi. last night, which premiered in Los Angeles, the San Onofre Syndrome. And you also need to know, of course, Kat Kramer, who does her own film festival. So you've got some really great connections here um, that you need to, and, and, and I do, do um, um, make use of. So if you'll all exchange your um, contacts in the chat. And Demacia, I do want to introduce you to Jim and Mary Beth. They're based in Bolinas. Uh, they, they have released uh, this incredibly great film about, it's a two-part film. In the first part, they show the shutdown, the citizen the successful citizen campaign to shut down two of the biggest nuclear plants in the world at San Onofre, California. And then the second part of the film, it deals with the nuclear waste issue. And uh, I've known Jim and Mary Beth uh, since the 1800s, and um, they are truly great uh, filmmakers and great people. So you need to include them in your, this is the, uh, Steve, you're so great, man. This is the, uh, the, um, poster from the film that opened last night and it's going to be available online you see virtual uh this coming sunday uh, jim and mary beth you want to say hi to demacio 
Hi, Demasio, and everybody else. And we just heard we just heard from Libby, who was also yeah. there last night, that uh, Norbert has accepted us into the Uranium Film Festival already. Because you know what, we want you left um, before the awards, Harvey. We were awarded the Grand Jury Award. That's phenomenal the, the, for the best documentary film. And everybody the on the call, all of you, you need to be aware. There's 62 folks with us. You need to look in the chat. And the um, this film is available free online. Uh, is that right? No, not yet. Um, we we are Monday, Sunday. Sunday. Uh, Sunday is our virtual premiere, but that's part of the awareness film festival that we were just we're still in and uh they they are selling the tickets we'll oh. have another one that unfortunately their um website for the ticket purchase is being problematic so i'm hoping they can fix it uh by the you know soon okay well you are you are with the environmental options network is that correct what is your what is your, what is your um, uh, uh, website? If you'll put it in the chat, that would be great. Okay, we'll do it. And yeah. again, everyone, the name, um, is, the name is Ecological Options Network. Sure. Ecological Options Network, and, and and you guys made it's a great film, and your previous films are also great. Uh, so everybody needs to go to their website, please, and and see what their work is, and then. Get in line when the when the film is available virtually. Uh, Demacio and Mary Beth, uh, do you mind if I call on some people? Uh, can I also? Can I uh, can I say something before you before I get off? Of course, no. Okay, you won't be off if you'll stay with us. That'd be great. All right. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, oh no, no, no problem. I had a closing statement. And and by the way, Steve Donziger has just joined us as oh, well. Oh, hi, Steve. How you doing? Okay, we're in the middle of a discussion here on um, uh, on filmmaking and, and Indigenous Peoples Day. And um, we also have Adam uh, from the labor movement going to fill us in, um, as usual, full schedule. So uh, let's go to Dorothy, uh, and then uh, Wendy, and then Rick, and then Alex, and then Ruth. Okay, Dorothy, right? Uh, so, I mean, anybody who knows me knows that I've been very involved in the uh, Palestinian cause for a long time. And I just want to recommend a film on that to you. It's called Occupation 101. Mm. If you haven't seen it, you should. It, it'll give you a history of exactly what happened from the time uh, Israel was created created until fairly recently. It still doesn't go all the way to, to now. And people ask me, uh, what, what did you expect? I mean, it's, I've been warning people for years that this was going to explode, there was going to be trouble. You can't keep people oppressed like this and expect that they're just going to take it. They couldn't take it anymore. They 260 some odd Palestinians in the West Bank were killed this year before this all happened. And I, I'm heartsick. I'm heartsick for all my Israeli friends who have lost lost people in this fighting. Um, I have a friend who's there right now who I'm trying to get out, but. Uh, she's not even Jewish. She fell in love with an Israeli and went to go visit his family. And she's there in Tel Aviv. Um, in it, she said they're going in and out of the safe room. Okay. So this is just didn't have to happen. And uh, but if you want to understand why it happened and how it all started, I, I recommend Occupation One Hundred One. 
Thank you for that, Dorothy. I want to, we'll all join in prayers, as they say, and God help us. I have a granddaughter over there. Oh. Um, Wendy? I mean, the goal of having a music festival right outside the fence of an open-air prison. Let's pray for peace. Let's just hope this ends quickly, and I hope that uh, the same thing happens in Ukraine. Our species cannot survive this. I can't. I will throw in one small thing here. A number of years ago, uh, we were approached. Uh, the Israelis were talking about building a nuclear power plant for commercial purposes. If you can imagine what would be going on. Anyway, Wendy, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I I don't want to um cut into Steve Donziger's time. I really appreciate that he's here. Well, um, we have but Adam I did... with Aaron with us too. So yeah, go ahead. and Carolina's here also. Um, so very exciting stuff. Um, I just wanted to make a couple of points. Forgive my speed talking, but um, to wrap up, going back to the context with Andrea, but I feel like I'd be remiss for Indigenous People Day if I didn't mention um the Tequesta Indians of uh, Florida that were here for at least ten thousand years that were wiped out when the Spanish came. And um, just the fact that it's just completely covered up and it makes you wonder like what they were high, like what, why don't they talk about this? They were here for 10,000 years in a very inhospitable mm-hmm. land on um, what happened with them. You mentioned the Choctaw Indians um, earlier or natives, I should say. And um, they actually fled the South during that occupation and became the Seminole Indians. And a lot of escaped slaves came down and teamed up with the Seminoles. And there was um, just a lot of, mixing and community and culture. And I found out recently there was um, an under an underwater railroad for escaped slaves to come through, um, team up with the natives and then take boats over to the Bahamas. And I find as well about um, the very first, the author of the very first document of white people calling on the emancipation of slaves came from Francis Pastorius, who is the, um, the founder of Germantown and actually the um, direct lineage of Jaco Pastorius, the bass player. And um, he called for um, slavery to be abolished like a hundred years before um, Thomas Jefferson. And um, he also wrote about his business with the natives of that area. And at the time they were being called savages. And this is in like the 1600s. And he wrote very eloquently just about how they were like so far less savage than anything that we were. And um, I would just recommend checking out the writings of Francis Pastorius and looking into the Tequesta tribe. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can you spell his name in the chat? Can you put his name in the chat? I can't. Pastorius. If you'll give it to Steve, our our wonderkind, maybe we can find something on him. Look up greatest bass player in history. What's that? I said, look up greatest bass player in history. Okay, we can do that. Great. Thank you. Thank you for those connections. Rick Monica, Alex, Ruth Strauss, and then we have Steve Donziger and Aaron. And I, I want to um, make sure that Aaron and Steve are connected. Go ahead, Rick and Alex. I just want to say that uh, Paducah, Kentucky, seems like it's real close to that Port Smith or yes, Ohio. And that's where we were refining some of the early beginning of plutonium or uranium to make a bomb for the Manhattan Project, the enriched uranium. Uh, it created a big Superfund site. Um, and uh, so it adds, you know, the one in Ohio 
one fairly adjacent. And the reason that they started building TVA was they needed the power to run these nuclear enrichment plants in, in Paducah, Kentucky. And I wonder if anybody has more knowledge, how much power is used in refining uranium fuel rods compared to what the damn power plant can put out? Because my guess, when you put in that and that you have to store the waste forever, that uh, nuclear power is energy deficient. I've, I have read uh, back in the day that it takes at least 17 years of nuclear power operation to pay back the energy that's put into a nuclear power plant. And we wanted to point out, uh, as uh, Pat pointed out, first of all, the Portsmouth site, and I'm well, the Paducah site, of course, is, you're correct, near the Portsmouth site. It's also on the Ohio River. Um, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the enrichment facility at P Portsmouth uses more electricity than the entire city of New York. And they built two full-scale, count them, two full-scale coal burners uh, to power Portsmouth. And now they want to build a nuclear plant to power the place. And just remember that quote from Macron, uh, nuclear power and nuclear weapons are completely inseparable. Thank you for that. Very good. Alex, and then Ruth, and then I want to introduce both Aaron and Steve Don, Aaron and Steve. Go ahead, um, Alex. I, I have a question. Go for it. How much how much will it cost for, for people to get more money? What's that? How much will it cost for people to get more money? I don't know. That's a good question. Thank you for that, Alex. I, I can't answer. Uh, Ruth, go ahead. Ruth Strauss? We um, Ruth is... I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah no, you're I'm good. Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead, Ruth. Um, I just wanted to say about uh, the SOS um, film, it's a wonderful, you know, idea. I know it was a great project in the making for a long time, and uh, congratulations. I'm sure it's going to get a lot of awards, but I did want to say, thank God Myla told me about it last night. I went onto the website, and yes, it is true. It is extremely complex to try to get a ticket, and um. I signed up for a virtual ticket uh, because I couldn't make it last night because I just found out at the last minute. I have no idea whether I'm going to receive that virtual <laughs> ticket or not, but I did want to tell you that because Myla said you had noticed that there weren't as many, you know, people showing up as you'd expected. So I am okay. hoping that you will get the website cleared up. Thank you. Well, everyone should communicate directly with Jim and Mary Beth of the Ecological Options Network. I got that right. And Bolinas. Right. And um, and and uh, they're great activists and great filmmakers, and um, uh, we'll find a way for you to get to see the film. Okay, I, I and uh, I think we're good now. Oh, Cat, Cat, you wanted to raise your hand, and then I want to talk to Aaron and Steve. Go ahead, Cat Kramer. Yes, hi. I'm only on uh, audio today, but I just wanted to say congratulations to Mary Beth and Jim for winning the grand jury prize at the awareness film festival i'm sorry i wasn't able to be there yesterday i had planned on coming and i do have shiro's for change festival which is presented by my cinema series cat kramer's films that change the world and i'm going to be looking at your film on the link and definitely considering it uh thank you so much for making it and then i also wanted to just say to dimashio and and remind harvey and um 
Libby, that we did have the Atomic Age Cinema Fest that we all did together here in L.A., which was the Uranium Film Festival a few years ago. That was the first time it was ever, I believe, in Los Angeles. Right. So I think it's very exciting that it's coming back. And um, I have a lot of films already that I've curated for my festival. And um, and hopefully, you know, maybe some of them can be included as well. Thank you. Great. So thank you so much, though, for being on. And um, congratulations again. Thank you, Kat. And we're honored to have Kat Kramer with us. She's a, a great uh, a fixture, an important player in the uh, in the film community. Uh, also quite an actress, by the way. I, I just saw something you were in, Kat. Kind of blew my mind. So you're fabulous. I, I want to jointly now um, uh, introduce uh, uh, Aaron and Steve. Um, Aaron has been with us, Steve, uh, Steve Donziger, Aaron Wozniak. Uh, Aaron is a, a major player in the American labor movement. And I, I wanted, Steve, if you can um, listen to a 10-minute presentation from Aaron uh, and then, and then uh, segue your um, uh, presentation in with what's happening with American labor now. That would be a great thing. Uh, Aaron's a terrific presenter. And uh, um, uh, Aaron, you're, where are you right now, Aaron? I am in Rhode Island at the moment. Okay, so, whoa, look at that. Um, and Steve Donziger, of course, Steve Donziger, of course, is the uh, the legendary attorney um, who who won the, the gargantuan uh, decision for the Ecuadorian people, and now and has since been assaulted by the uh, the uh, corporate and legal system, which are, as we know, not separate. Aaron, before Steve comes on, and Steve is a big uh, fan, I know, of organized labor. Uh, can you give us a quick rundown of what's going on with organized labor in this country? It seems like a massive uprising, the likes of which I haven't remembered. But go ahead, give us, give us, uh, give us the, the scoop. Well, before I get into it, I want to point something out. Uh, Brother Donziger was never afforded the opportunity to actually levy a real defense for himself. Um, and I think that's an important point to point out when it comes to our American justice system, especially when it comes to his law license. Um, across the labor movement, we're seeing terrific, terrific gains. And that's because people are waking up. The AFL-CIO just reported 500,000 new members. Uh, for wow. the decades. Yeah. How much? Really? That's I hadn't heard that. That's phenomenal. 500,000 between the 62 affiliate unions. Ah. Okay. Fantastic. That's huge. All right. UAW, making progress there. Um, we're seeing the new international president as part of that United Change effort that uh, other unions have tried um, doing stand-up strikes and being very effective with it. Uh, he's put out several comments here recently uh, after he did the bachelor's uh, kind of awarding of roses to CEOs that have been behaving well and giving the members what they want um, and explained that, you know, they're not there to uh, cause damage to the employer or to the uh, infrastructure. Um, rather, they just want their demands heard. So they've completely changed the agenda setting at the table, the tone. Uh, the big three came in, obviously, with the upper dominant hand. Um, but uh, Brother Fain has shown that, you know, if we go from a top down to a bottom up kind of organizing model and let members lead bargaining at the table, guess what? People are involved and invested in the outcome. Um, so similar to what we do here in my local, uh, we put members on the bargaining committee and we have members voices predominate. And then only really where somebody like myself is needed as a business agent, uh, do we step in? Um, 
So, you know, that, that goes to the people's first kind of like mentality. Uh, Barry Eldon actually had a really good take too on kind of the three-dimensional uh, aspect of power uh, mm -hmm. that it takes to uh, turn things around um, whenever you're in a, in a given situation. But wielding power is probably one of the hardest things we've ever done in the labor movement. Um, it's a once-in-a-generation opportunity. It's one once-in-a-generation clawback because actually what we're seeing is we look at it as growth right now, but we're recapturing what we've lost since World War II. And the goal here uh, amongst those of us that care about organizing in large numbers is to come back in terms of millions, not just a few thousand here and there. Business unionism killed the United States uh, of America's labor movement. Um, it made our membership dwindle. Uh, we went to a density-driven model that, you know, for at least two or three decades uh, was our greatest antithesis because we left workers out in the rural areas unorganized. Uh, nowadays, I can just say from experience, we're knocking doors in the country and we don't care. If somebody wants a fair shake, fair square on their plate, healthcare, retirement security, and all that stuff, we're going to fight for them. So up at UAW, um, the two major issues that are, you know, uh, stagnating right now um, at the table between the big three are uh, healthcare retirements post-retirement, or healthcare benefits, sorry, post-retirement, and then uh, pension benefits, um, which isn't surprising. You know, my generation, uh, I think a lot of us would be surprised in uh, Gen Y and millennials to find out that it used to be the norm for employers to pay for your healthcare benefits after you retired, who would have guessed, right? Same with pensions. Um, the fact that we have these special financing applications coming in from the Butch Lewis Pay Act that are uh, making all the critical and declining pensions solvent through 2051 um, is a major big deal. We all know what happened with the Central States Pension Fund um, and UPS doing its mass withdrawal a few years ago. People were literally getting you know monthly pension checks to the uh, amounts of five dollars. Some some are pennies, but thanks to Uncle Joe there up at the up at the White House and uh, the Butch Lewis Pay Act, um, they've reinvigorated the system with uh, regulated funds um, that are going to be accounted for and backed by the Pension Guarantee Benefit Corporation, which is the United States government. Um, so for the first time in a long time, the American labor movement has stepped up to the rise to challenge, and it looks like we're swinging for the fences and hitting every ball. I mean, we're batting a thousand. Uh, what we have to be careful for in organized labor is honestly being victims of our own success. Um, and I think that's that's easy to say. It's hard to do. But if you look around and you look at these membership numbers and regrowth, you look at the contracts that are being negotiated and you look at the results, it's amazing. I can tell you for myself, I took a group of valets that for over 60 years have fought for healthcare and one negotiation session got them paid for healthcare and pensions. So it's, it's not impossible. Um, people just need to keep that mindset, that working class mindset of organizing. And I think that when we look back, on these kind of foundational moments in the last couple of decades, we start to see that, you know, uh, baby boomers and, and our parents kind of instilled in us this, this protest movement kind of mentality. Um, and then where it doesn't work out in the courtrooms, one of the favorite things I'm, one of the things I'm uh, fond of saying rather is we just take it to the streets because we can always win in the streets. Right. Um, so a lot of bosses are walking around kind of timid the, the board is constantly changing its, its uh, rules and regulations in our favor. Uh, we've seen a lot of recent decisions um, indicating that things might even sweepingly go more uh, favorably in terms of uh, exclusive representatives or organized unions. Um, 
There should be some changes to wine garden coming up based off of a general counsel's memo soliciting advice. Uh, work rules, uh, where they're not reasonably tailored, uh, or rather uh, narrowly tailored and reasonable, um, or in the least restrictive means, are now knocked out. Uh, there was a case, Teamsters versus Stericycle. If you're not familiar with Stericycle, it's a garbage-ass company ran by garbage-ass people. And uh, <laughs> their, their, HR can, their HR can catch these hands because we get it every day. And at the end of the day, yeah. they've been harassing, uh, harassing my brethren left and right. And, uh, you know, they got, they got NLRB'd, and now they are case law. Um, well, listen, um, you know, Aaron, aside from having the best radio voice on the, on the uh, call, it's always great to have you on to ground us in the labor movement, which is absolutely essential to the progressive left in this country. And nobody knows that better than Steve Donziger. Um, uh, I don't know if you two guys have met. Uh, Steve, uh, do you want to jump in here with Aaron and talk about labor and then the indigenous and then your own uh, court cases and, and where we stand? Aaron, it's great to have you with us. Put your links in the chat, please, and keep coming back. Uh, yeah. but, but stay with us now. Let's talk to Steve. Uh, Steve Donziger, where are you? Did I lose you? You should always be in touch, Aaron, with uh, Dennis Bernstein, the host of the Flashpoint show. We don't hear enough about labor in, in the progressive movement. There you go. Steve, you're with us? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, and see you. So there you go. So meet Aaron. Fabulous. Aaron, meet Steve. You bet. Hey, Aaron. Thank you for that summary. It's so encouraging to hear that. You know, I've been doing some appearances with Chris Smalls to organize the uh, Amazon Union in Staten Island, a, a fellow New Yorker, but he's, you know, trying to do a lot of organizing of, of Jeff Bezos's company and has had some degree of success. You know, I think it's critical to combine the movements, you know, the environmental movement, the climate justice movement, the labor movement must come together, in my opinion, if we're, if we're gonna create significant real change in this country that we're all fighting for. And, you know, what you're doing is frontline stuff. It's critical. Um, you know, the, the conflict between capital and labor, um, people don't want to talk about it in those terms, but it really is at the, it's the, it's the root of every, everything, almost everything that goes on. Let's like not avoid it. And I think the reason why our country has, you know, the, the trends in the last, of recent decades toward right-wing extremism and massive inequality of wealth um, has so much to do with what you talk about and how, you know, labor, the labor movement has been weakened and, you know, partly by its own doing, the, the, the sort of sellout leadership and, you know, partly just by policies where, um, you know, the wealthy and the corporate sector basically use government to wage class warfare on the poor in the working class. And, you know, people don't want to talk, use terms like class warfare or capitalism or the conflict between capital and labor. But like, we have to have, in my opinion, we have to have clear language, mm -hmm. you know, so we can have clear analyses of, of, of reality so we can create the best strategy. So I salute you, my friend, and all of your colleagues. What you're doing is vital, vital, vital. And, you know, when I think about my own work as a lawyer, environmental justice lawyer, someone who's fought for indigenous peoples um, for many years, peoples in the Amazon of Ecuador against Chevron, you know, it's all connected, you know, it's, it really is. And, 
and you know we're just not going to get there unless we understand those those connections and understand how to combine these movements you know not just labor and environmental justice but also criminal justice and you know the the you know the movement to reform the criminal justice system and policing um you know the movement for healthcare justice for housing it's all connected and and i think only with a stronger labor movement do, do really the broader movements have any hope of fundamentally changing this these misalignments that we have in our country now that make us so can you still see me i just got oh yeah 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 now uh, steve put up uh, uh some great uh visuals here okay in any event um that's my take and i again i thank you and i look forward to meeting you in person I want to throw in one thing that everybody should never forget this. The first people that Hitler put in the concentration camp at Dachau were the labor organizers. Mm -hmm. They were his very first target. Look look at Ecuador, right? No unions, right? How he used it to to take over the the working class of the local villages um, and then use the very same levers of corruption and power from the government. Yeah, Steve, you're right on the money. It's the principal force by which the working class is is really going to be the uh, the vocal majority, right? And we're underrepresented. Yeah, and I'll say this in 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 the law. I mean, I'm a lawyer, although I've been disbarred by without a hearing, first lawyer ever. But you know, we all know this being progressives, but like it bears repeating. Okay, the law is a mechanism that follows does not lead it follows what happens among the people among the street among labor organizing among climate justice organizing and you know in the climate justice field we're seeing an increasing number of cases in really the last few months that are finally moving forward judges are moving them forward and and after being stalled for years and it's a, it's clearly a response to organizing in the climate justice movement and in the labor movement, you know, and a lot of lawyers are out there doing some really creative things right now in various areas. I mean, there's just, it's astounding the number of creative litigation strategies that I'm observing around the world and in the United States that are like gaining traction because judges are actually starting to understand that to save the system, they've got to give. I mean, these, these systems have to give more to the working class and more to communities of color and communities that have historically been completely screwed in our political system. We recognize that, you know, like in Providence, one of the things that we did was uh, we just passed a resolution. Uh, Providence, Rhode Island is now the first climate job city in the world. That's awesome. We're focusing on energy and we're doing it in tandem, right? Labor and environmental organizing, because as we all know, these organizing circles are the same people, just with different hats, right? And different, yeah. different organizational titles. But at the end of the day, we all run together. Um, well, I- speaking of which, you know, the synergy also, I don't think you, I'm not sure if uh, you've been on, Aaron. I know Steve has with uh, with um, Andrea Miller and Ray McClendon, who are, have pioneered the relational grassroots kind of organizing for getting out the vote in the BIPOC communities. And that kind of organizing uh, with Steve's work and with your work really needs to synergize. And uh, we've also, of course, been talking about making a movie about Steve and his work. We have got filmmaker and a buddy of mine, David Saltman, on uh, that we need to connect and continue to 
push ahead with. So this is all really, really good. Uh, Dorothy has a hand. Dorothy, when you have a hand, we all listen. A problem we have here in California is resistance from the unions because the solar industry is not unionized. And I, I want to ask you, what what is labor doing about organizing workers in the solar industry? Because it's a big problem here. It is. It's amazing. Uh, I will throw in, and Dorothy knows this, and uh, Dorothy was just at Steve's. Steve was just at Dorothy's house. A wonderful event. Thank you for that, Dorothy. It was really great. Uh, but in California, uh, there are 1,800 um, unionized workers at the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant and 70,000 non-unionized workers in the solar industry. And guess who has more clout? So, you know, that's a huge, as Dorothy's 100% right, that we have to unionize the solar industry. Yeah, but we'll, uh, what we're talking about is top-down versus bottom-up organizing, right? The NLRA allows both. And unfortunately, what those workers are trapped in is a, is a contractor model. Um, for the electrical workers specifically, it's called NECA, the National Electrical Contracting Association. So all IBW locals have to deal with NECA. Um, and NECA contractors, obviously, are the primary source of hiring halls. Um, what you're facing is this. It's a lack of ground game organizing with that membership base. I can tell you as an IBW member out of Florida, we love green energy. I mean, it's work. It is work. Yeah. And so, I mean, to your point, there's a disconnect. Why would Why would a group of workers with high, uh, you know, high amount of skills and, and uh, labor value, not want to work. And that's usually it's seen as a, a cautionary tale, right? Um, and so if you look at the UAW um, just transition model to electrical vehicles and what they're trying to push throughout the entire labor movement, that's part of the answer. Um, well, they did it at GM, but the question is, what are we going to do about it? We can say why we can't do something about it, but that's not helpful. We have to figure out how we can do something about it because it's screwing up the whole. Yes, yeah, really hurting the, us. The planet. And yeah. I, I got to insert today, uh, just today, a phenomenal breakthrough in the New York Times. Uh, they have a piece on the front page that Vermont, the primary utility in Vermont, recovering from the big storms, does not want to put up new power lines. They want to lease a battery to every home completely revolutionized the grid. And this is the utility doing it. And that, that stuff's got to be unionized. If we have the unions behind that with a utility, we can completely transform. And it's exactly the opposite what Gavin Newsom is doing in California. Well, look, at, look at what we did in, in California, right? Uh, as the Teamsters. I mean, we sent all of our trucks out there nationwide. Just to let Gavin know we're not too happy with it. <laughs> well, they, I hope they were electric trucks. Steve, did you want to jump in with that? I'm going to go to Lynn Feinerman. They weren't electric, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they will be. <laughs> Just give us the five. <laughs> uh, Steve Donziger, you want to jump in here? And or, This is a great, great conversation. Thank you for bringing that up, Dorothy. I mean, that's a huge deal. Uh, the the non-unionization of the, the solar industry. That's got to change. Steve, you All want right. to jump in? Can I just make a couple of disparate points? That are Please, mildly yeah. connected? I just want to get this off my chest. First, I want to thank Dorothy, <laughs> who has become my friend and a huge support pillar to me and my family and the people of Ecuador. Hi, Dorothy. Thank you for what you're doing. Really Love appreciate you. it. 
the second thing that's is a joy that i got to know you I'm, well, I'm it's, well we got a lot we're going to be causing a lot of trouble together i suspect <laughs> the second thing i want to say is today is indigenous people's day and as you know i've worked for many years in ecuador on behalf of five indigenous peoples and other non-indigenous amazon communities fighting chevron over pollution and i want to just acknowledge um my clients in Ecuador who are still suffering tremendously and have never collected the money that they legitimately won um, in this historic lawsuit and who have been really wrecked by oil development in Ecuador that has led to massive pollution and likely thousands of deaths from cancer. And this is obviously happening in a relatively isolated area of the world, not enough people know about it, despite our best efforts to do something about it and publicize it. So on this day, I just want to acknowledge those people, as well as all indigenous peoples all over the world, who are the real frontline defenders of the earth. Yeah. Some of you might know, can I just say one other quick please, thing? Please, 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 yes. So when I went to prison, you know, Chevron prosecuted me privately for criminal contempt of court in this really bogus, irregular, illegal, corrupt legal case where I never got a jury. And I ended up serving almost three years in detention, including six weeks in a federal prison. When I went to prison, I was sent a book by an indigenous lawyer, which I'm holding right here. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, I want to mention this book and encourage people, if you don't know it. Well, the, the, what, give us the title because we're on radio. I'm sorry. It's called In the Courts of the Conqueror. And, and who's the author? The subtitle is The Ten Worst Indian Law Cases Ever Decided. And the author is Walter R. Eco Hawk, who's an indigenous leader from Oklahoma, who's a scholar. And I want to mention this. I went to law school. I got a very good education, good universities, went to Harvard Law. Until I went to prison, like over 30 years after I got out of law school and read this book, okay, I had never understood the extent to which the law was used as a tool for land theft and oppression of the original inhabitants of our territories here in the what is now called the United States of America. And it really made me realize as a lawyer how completely deprived I was of, an, of a well-rounded education and a critical education, because I'm a pretty... I'm a critical thinker generally, and I didn't really know the extent to which this went on. And it's all in this book, which should be required reading in every university, in every law school in the country and the world to really understand the deep, really origins of injustice in our country. So I just wanted to mention that in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day. Again, the book is called In the Courts of the Conqueror by Walter R. Eco Hawk. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Matt. We have we still have 55 people on with us after almost uh, two hours. Uh, Steve, Aaron, Dorothy, Tatanka, it's great to have you on. Fant this is a fantastic gathering here. We are, of course, praying for peace in the Middle East and in Ukraine. Um, thankful there are no nuclear plants in Israel, but there are in uh, my two cents worth is that Zaporizhia really needs to be taken over by the UN or some global body or before we have another nightmare. Uh, your your point on the on the law is incredibly important, Steve. I'm sure Aaron, you know uh, many lawyers who've made a big difference for the union movement. So uh, let's keep going on this. We'll get to you to talk in a minute. But Lynn Feinerman 
and um, just Harvey, can I, I i just want to go ahead demacio to uh demacio oh, yeah to stephen donziger and aaron yes and um uh, demacio uh, uh, there has been a film made about you steve it's an old one i don't know if you want to recommend it to uh demacio for the um uh uranium film festival something to consider and uh, if Dave Saltman and I can ever get it together, we'll get a film out about you <laughs> as well. Uh, uh, Lynn Feinerman, uh, a great radio host and regular with us, quite a brilliant woman. Lynn, do you want to chime in here? Thank you, Harvey. Those are very kind words. I would like to say, first of all, um, Steve, a longtime big admirer, a small supporter, <laughs> um, not, not able to be a big one. Um, I have done some radio work with numerous uh, indigenous women activists uh, in uh, South America, Ecuador and Colombia, et cetera. And I wonder if, you, uh, speaking of organizing, if there is a way that the movement can be um, expanded to include groups like Sabo Alliance and other groups that are in South America that are um, largely women-based and a number of women have come here to speak at Bioneers and other places, Nemontin and Kimo, um, who's uh, related to Amazon Frontlines um, and uh, numerous other activist women, Gloria Hilda, Ushigwasanti. Um, and I'm wondering, because they've had some really substantial successes in kicking Chevron and others out of their territories. I'm wondering how they can be brought in to the uh, worldwide organizing scheme. Is that directed at me? Yes. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that question. Thank you for your support. Really appreciate it. Um, well, you know, the, the work they do is vital to justice, you know, climate justice and justice in the Amazon. You know, just so people know, in, in the Amazon of Ecuador, which is an oil producing region, you know, Texaco and now Chevron completely wrecked the northern part of Ecuador's Amazon, where my clients live and where I've done work for 25 years, where the some of these frontline groups work is more in the middle and southern part where oil companies have tried to get in there and, and drill in these extremely delicate ecosystems, some of which are homes to non-contacted indigenous groups. You know, this is the true front lines of the planet and in terms of preserving our planet. And the work that they have done has been just tremendous in terms of keeping out these oil companies. And, you know, it's a combination of good old fashioned organizing, legal strategies, public relations strategies and just pressure. So, um, you know, the fundamental problem, this might be too much information, but I'll mention it, is- you we, know, ne we never have too much information on these calls, Steve. That's okay. a thing for. <laughs> I, I feel Maybe like we should rename them. The too, like too much information calls, but go ahead. Yeah, but I mean, this, this is crazy. I mean, again, I apologize if people know this. But the, the way these governments, the government of Ecuador being no exception, get around sort of the need to adhere to international laws regards indigenous rights, which requires free, informed, and prior consent before any oil company goes into territory, 
is they basically grant land rights to the indigenous groups, sometimes based on their historical territory, but they keep subsoil rights. We think about that. It's like you can have this land and put a fence on it, although that's not how most indigenous groups think. It's a very Western concept of fence, but the government will try to sell subsoil rights to say a foreign oil company on territory legally owned by indigenous peoples. And it's just, it, that right there in a, in a nutshell is the nub of so much conflict around the world between you know the fossil fuel industry and the protectors of the planet, right there. That one legal fiction that governments say we, re we retain subsoil rights to your land and we can sell it off, you know, without your consent or maybe with the consent of some fake elected, you know, leadership group, you know, is, is how they get around legal restrictions on respecting indigenous rights. And you see this all the time in Ecuador and the people that Lynn was referring to have become really savvy in terms of preventing this little legal trick from being implemented in Ecuador, such that they've literally kept out, you know, oil development from huge areas of the Amazon that, you know, if you want to look at it objectively, it's cost Ecuador's government billions of dollars in revenue, but it's preserved, I would argue, 10 times that amount in terms of the value of of, of the rainforest and what it does for the lungs of the planet and for the sustainability of the planet, which benefits all human beings, all of humanity and all of life species. You know, it's not just us. There's lots of other species on the earth that need to be respected. So I salute them. And yes, there needs to be more connections between those folks and the great work they're doing and the work Aaron's doing and the work we're doing, you know, in other parts of the Amazon. By the way, it'd really help me if I could get my passport back so I can go back down there. I haven't been to Ecuador in five years because they won't let me leave the country. God, unbelievable. You know, Steve, it's an interesting point that you bring up about passage of title and land, right? Like we've been trapped in this quagmire of Macintosh since the 20s or so, um, or before then, um, where, you know, the United States court ruled that title never passed back to Native Americans um, thus, the title of Native Americans to either the British, the Spanish, or whichever occupying country, and then successively onto the United States government. And it wasn't until recently that we've seen a court change that um, perspective. And I dropped it in here. It's the Pueblos in Colorado won their water rights back subsurface, which yeah. is a huge change. But what they were doing, if I mean, you, you get it. They were um, interpreting Spanish law on a Spanish matter. I mean, completely separate aside from the United States president. And the court did it in such a searchingly way that they, they tried to not disturb Macintosh. But if you see the end result, which is, you know, this, uh, this native tribe was given back their water rights. Uh, and there are, there are long, uh, long remedies to be paid back to them for the robbing of those water rights. Yeah. First and many for subsurface rights, but we also have, um, you know, uh, above uh, or at astro rights, right? Like up to the stars. Um, and I mean, you know, go look at Cosby. I mean, it's it's pretty pretty historic when you think about the impact that we have um, as a country on Native American lands, and we just try to find and rationalize these little deflections to, well, you know, it it, it would be a taking, but we're not killing your chickens with sonic booms. 
or it would be subsurface mining, but we're drilling sideways. See, so that's that's completely legitimate. Okay. And you go down to Ecuador, and I mean, you're probably the most familiar person here, but the amount of trickery that you know all the corporate interests got involved with to just in run those those little villages in Indiana law, um, which completely prohibited them being there in the first place until the national government stepped in. Um, is just atrocious, and they wouldn't have been able to do so without mega funding in the in the in the coordination of multiple governments, not just one. Um, right. And I mean, you know, a lot of times people just kind of write this story off as, hey, it's 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 you know, big business versus the little man. But that's not just what's happening down there in Ecuador. You have genetic mutation that's going on. Right. You, you have uh, pockets of uh, petroleum chemicals that are never going to leave. Um, there is no you know, remedial effort in, in terms of real uh, lasting impact to the environment uh, being done. And I mean, it's it's disgusting. It's disgusting yeah, it to is. have an American government, right, that backs this corporate interest you took on, you rightfully beat the hell out of them. Um, and then they got so sour, right, that their successor in interest came up here and got you on a contempt just just to play the, you know, who has a law license game. Um, yeah, well, they, they, and it's thuggery, basically, and thievery. It's a it's a terrible uh, combination. Well, I can say, uh, I can say we're, we're at the um, bar. I'm, I'm disgusted that they did that to Steve. It's disgusting that they didn't allow him to have a defense. There was no notice and opportunity to really be heard. It was more of a contempt hearing, and that's it. Um, well, we, we have mentioned uh, previously on this show also um, uh, Leonard Peltier, this being Indigenous People's Day. It's insane uh, the, what's happening with him and um, um, uh, not to, and Julian Assange as well. Steve's right up there in that, uh, in that triumvirate. Uh, uh, I hope that's a doobie you're smoking. We don't allow cigarettes on the uh, on the on the show here. So, uh, <laughs> um, okay. Well, thank you for that, Aaron. I want to go to Justin. Justin's always got something smart uh, to Tatanka's say. Tatanka's had his hand up before Justin. Oh, okay. Tatanka, go for it, bro. Thank you, God. I got about you know a whole handful of things now, but very quickly I'll do them. We need to back to before this discussion. We need to reframe the energy issue as also a peace and war issue. It has everything to do with full spectrum dom dominance, and we need a life economy and life culture, which the indigenous people of South America have have uh, orchestrated a lot of that uh, conversation, and it has to involve labor. So um, the Silkwood story, Karen Silkwood, is a labor story. You know, people don't even think of it that way. She was a labor organizer with the oil, chemical, and atomic workers. And uh, she was assassinated, um, not for getting information out about uh, radiation. I think that was getting out. But because when she was on her way to the New York Times reporter, she was talking about fissile material going from Kermagee to Israel and to Iran. That was the story that didn't get out. Um, to the labor with IBEW and with the solar industry, in the work that Romero Institute was doing to, to get the first bill passed, which we did around um, electricity in California, um, it involved IBEW behind the scenes working with environmentalists. And we had a plan to transition with a top IBEW labor or, uh, leadership because they just had a, an election of a new uh, a new president there that came into Sacramento, and we've been working with the people who are life friends with his, to transition and to propose to the employers something we thought was possible 
uh, to transition to career jobs in solar. Um, this was also sabotaged by Newsom getting in bed with the uh, utility companies and you know pushing to reopen uh, because he reopened uh, Diablo Canyon after the shutdown, which uh, I live 15 miles from it. So Linda Seeley and I and, and Harvey and others are brainstorming about the next stage because we don't want that to open. Okay, um, Steve, thank you for that book. I, I'm probably, uh, along with you, one of the few people that know about the book because I work with Danny Sheehan, right? So yeah, I heard about it from Danny and Sarah. Otherwise, I wouldn't know about it. Um, I also just heard from Danny about over the weekend that um, within, I think, three days of handing his RICO lawsuit over to Rob Bonta, Attorney General in California, to hold the oil companies in California responsible for their for their mayhem and death and and uh, thievery and and all that, um, and as you know, it's a way of piercing the uh, the corporate veil and holding board members responsible and holding stockholders responsible, a lot of parties responsible. So, with a lot of research done on this, within about three days, he got his call from the top oil company who he hasn't spoken with yet in California. So, just to let people know about that. Um, uh, well, the critical thing we're doing now in California to talk, if I can jump in, the Diablo Canyon Nuclear Unit 1 is currently shut for their periodic refueling. And we are, and Newsom has stabbed us in the back on the, uh, the deal that was cut in 2016 <laughs> to shut those reactors. And this is our window of opportunity. It's easier to keep a reactor shut than the shut one that's open. And so the Mothers for Peace, we are all flat out trying to get whatever legal, regulatory, and political relief we can get to shut, keep this reactor shut. It, it's insane. It's embrittled. It's cracked. It's surrounded by earthquakes. You know, when people, earthquake faults, when people say, are you for and against nuclear power, the, the right answer is, well, which reactors are you talking about? And these two in California are are the very worst. And this fight in California to keep Diablo on on target with the deal that was cut, and we had it. We had a deal that the unions signed off on to shut these two reactors. And the the nuclear industry. We're seeing more and more now how important the military aspect is of atomic power. These this pushed to keep Diablo open makes absolutely no economic sense, even for the utility company. It's all military. And, and so that's where we're at with this. Steve was in California, got his ears, ears full of this, but this is uh, the big deal. Tatanka, go ahead. Yeah, just a couple more things. Uh, while, while I'm on the call with you, uh, Steve, did you send that email to Sarah yet? <laughs> Sarah Nelson, uh, R.E. Danny, if you did, I'll bug her. If you didn't, I'll I'll, I'll bug you. <laughs> I didn't send it, but please tell her. That we need okay. To okay. All right. And also, I mean, the the, the da da Danny up. Sheehan, Danny Sheehan, in my opinion, is one of the greatest lawyers in American history. <laughs> well, you know what you and he hold in common? Uh, you really have to you really have to think uh, you have to think like an organizer and you especially in law today with the way the Supreme Court is, 
you have to team up with organizers or else you can't really get anything done. And you have that in common and you're really doing a great, a great job on that. Well, thank you. You know, but it's, it's why they disbarred me. Right. And, and I'll tell I you, know. This. I know, yeah, they, I, know. They, I know. They want, they want the way they educate lawyers is in America <laughs> is they want you to, if you don't stay within the four corners of the law. Okay. They don't yeah, want you to be in the profession. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Well, you it's, and Michael Cohen have, you and Michael Cohen have something in common. <laughs> what? It's the law as they see it. There's the some laws that, that are legitimate so, laws that they really don't want to uh, uh, have applied, like say one man, one vote. That and one, and to, oh, to that and the other point I was going to make, Aaron, thank you. Uh, yes, we the creativity that lawyers can exhibit. I mean, I saw this first up because I was I was honored to be a part of negotiations with the UFW. And there was just Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, myself, and Jerry Cohen. Jerry Cohen was so friggin' creative. <laughs> oh my gosh. The things he did were, were, I mean, it blew my mind, but it's because he didn't think, you know, as, you know, coming out of UC Berkeley or out of, or out of Harvard, he was, he was on, he was on the strike. He was on the line. He was doing the boycotting. And so you start thinking like an organizer and you start strategizing like that. And then all kinds of new possibilities open up. So yeah, thanks for your report. The on, yeah, really, I get all those out. numbers about the new the new members. That is great. That's phenomenal. Five hundred thousand new members. That's that's phenomenal. I got to point out where it's uh, four o'clock Pacific time, seven Eastern. Uh, Steve Caruso uh, and Mike, if you can keep this call going, we'll go to our our traditional four twenty uh, target, if that's okay. So everybody can go out and toke up at four twenty, but. Um, we usually supposed to end now, but Steve, if you can stay with us, uh, that'd be great. Uh, and Aaron and Tatanka, everybody, we still have 47 people on with us. I mean, it's, it's fun. your attention span. I couldn't have kept 47 college students this long, <laughs> believe me. Uh, 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 Justin, Justin LeBlanc always has great things to say. And then Brian Sternberg, Steinberg from uh, Michigan. Go ahead, uh, Justin. Sure. Uh, so we've been talking a lot of great details and some of that people may or may not have uh, familiarity with, so it may go over their head. So I'm, I'm basically going to try to summarize some of what we've said and make it accessible, right? So laws are levers, just like any other sort of thing that Archimedes talked about way back when. And, you know, it's, it's a math of how can I have this advantage versus that advantage, right? And most human negotiations are that way. They're not based on uh, the immutable physical principles. They're based on Im the mutable contracts, as Aaron talked about. Uh, and so uh, what I want to say is uh, let's take things from a creative perspective of, uh, you know, you talk about hidden rights of things. Well, First off, back in the uh, late, 19, late 1800s, early 1900s, progressive era, no laws existed for the protection of those workers who were organizing. In fact, they were beaten up because they were violating other so-called property laws and uh, even you know, striking in places that belonged to the employer by property rights, even though the labor was their work and their possession that uh, they could withhold or give as they wanted. But let's take this into a modern context. Okay, but you got to do it quickly, Justin. 30 seconds. Good. Don't actually hold a strike 
in the parking lot of the retail store, hold a tailgate party for your <laughs> sports team. And then I love the way you think, man. This is exactly what I do to bosses that piss us off. We go cook them and their neighbors breakfast and we sit out there all morning. <laughs> good for you. Good for you, Justin. Good for you, too. Uh, thank you for that. And um, uh, um, Brian Steinberg, are you in Ann Arbor? Um, Brian, are you in? Yeah, I just wanted to do a quick report. There's something really, a lot of stuff we talked about is really happening in Michigan, too on probably a little micro level. Uh, one big thing is we are trying to decuster Michigan. There is a Custer statue in Monroe, Michigan, right downtown. It would be in, there's actually, if you read about it, look up Wikipedia, Custer statue. We're trying to get his name off of a park there. So Indigenous Day, let's talk about decuster, not custard, decustering Michigan. That. And I'm part of a movement who's trying to do that locally. I, I have actually stood and spoken on that statue. Oh, because, so, okay. So, you know, okay. Yeah, Monroe, Michigan, as you know, <laughs> home, Monroe, Michigan is the home of the Fermi nuclear plant, which oh, okay, yeah. uh, partially blew up in 1966. But I will caution you that that statue, because it's near the nuke, is highly radioactive. And I wouldn't spend much time there. Okay. Okay. So, that, that real quickly thing. then. The other thing is we are now in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I live, we're working really toward doing community energy. We're trying to get off DTE. And um, I can just tell you personally, we had so many power outages. And this is Ann Arbor. If we're in Detroit, power outages last two to three times longer because it's Detroit. They don't give a about Detroit. This is like suburban witch Ann Arbor. They last forever. I've thrown out my refrigerator's contents two times already and got rid of my Costco membership because bulk food doesn't make sense in Michigan anymore because you can't freeze food because you can't keep your food fresh for because a two, three day blackout, that's it. CDC says it's two days. So we're looking on consumer energy. And also I'm a part of a group now that's trying to get power, like these smaller blue eddy power packs to Detroit vulnerable communities for power outages. So I well, thought you, gotta, really you gotta look at the, what the, this utility in Vermont is doing. Yeah, I know. So that's why it's really fascinating. Big we're, deal. We're looking to do grant monies to give temporary power to seniors who can shelter in place during a power outage, electric blankets for the winter. So it's like really becoming dire now in Michigan, the, the grid or the whatever. DTE really sucks. And we're finally seeing some traction to go after them. And well, you need to around. you need to you need to get Michigan made batteries in the basements of every home in Michigan. Well, we and can talk he, about that. And the last thing I want to talk about these batteries, is, yeah, yeah. as we've mentioned on this call, the battery technology is about to massively shift from lithium okay. to sodium. And lithium is lighter and more mobile. So lithium batteries will stay with cars, but at least for a while. But in the basements of homes, if, if this jump can be made to sodium based batteries, the cost is going to plummet. And yeah. It, and this model that's being developed in Vermont is huge. And the union movement's got to get into it. I got to tell you one quick story. In 1976, I was writing an article for Mother Jones about the coming of the uh, solar industry in connection with labor. Because I was working with a guy named Richard Grossman, a wonderful guy who pioneered that, passed away since. But I talked to the president 
of the sheet metal workers union, whose name was Ed Carlo. And uh, he later got into legal trouble. But the sheet metal workers were totally behind solar, even in the 70s. So this is a big deal. Go to the unions, get these batteries into the base. Everybody's thinking of batteries for cars. That's fine. But in the basements of homes, that's where uh, the ultimate uh, real uh, uh, shift is going to be made. And if you look up solar, you'll see the reason why sheet metal people like it is because the rigging and the contracting to put them on the roofs, that's where a good amount of the money comes from. It's not just the panels. So they certainly want more rigging, more stuff. And lastly, I'm in Michigan. We're seeing uh, UAW all over Facebook. I have lots of friends. We're really making it happen here in Michigan, all over the state. We got a great protest going on here, signs. Local event, local meetups, local people waving, getting cars honking, etc. We're we're all over the Michigan right now for the uh, UAW. So just want to tell you we're here. Check it out. You'll see all everyone I know on Facebook's all for the union stuff. So it's super strong here. You're muted, right? You're muted, uh, RV. RV, I just uh, just texted some organizers I know in Vermont that are going to be looking into that. It's a hell of an organizing opportunity. You're absolutely right. Oh, I was muted. Uh, anyway, um, um, did you hear anything I said about the batteries? Oh, the, well, I think the key with with the UA, a key with the UAW, everybody knows batteries are the, are, are, are going to change the world. And if there's this transition from lithium to sodium in batteries, the lithium the sodium is going to be too heavy for cars, but the lithium uh, is, and the lithium is too expensive for the homes. But if this transition is made to sodium-based batteries and you follow the Vermont model, which I, I first I've seen on today's New York Times, and put and have the utilities start putting uh, uh, batteries in every basement, you can take down the wires, for God's sakes. And what prompted this, especially in Vermont, was that the, this wave of storms that they just had, and the, the, the utilities are looking at having to rewire. They don't have to rewire. If you put batteries in the basement, and you and you know, not accidentally, the head of the Vermont U- utility that's going to do this is a woman, and um, you know, not accidentally, uh, the 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 prime minister who put Germany towards uh, zero nuclear plants is also a woman. So we're talking about Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, we can also talk about the, uh, the the what I consider just throwing this in the middle. The biggest. The, the biggest power transition in the history of the human race is now going on, and it's the shift of power from men to women. And uh, and that's what's really happening as well. So that's why the men are also freaked out and why I wind up with a macho idiot like Donald Trump. So, uh, uh, Brian, thanks for that. Keep it up in, in Ann Arbor. Great to have you with us. And speaking of women in power, let's go to Wendy Lederman. Go ahead, Wendy. Uh, uh, Steve, thank you for sticking with us. Let us know. If you got to go home, but uh, a group like this, you do not turn down. This is just phenomenal to be with all these great people. Go ahead, Wendy. Thank you, and um, and if you, I can stay as well, if um, if you need to keep us going, um, yeah. And I was actually thinking of um the point you made about women. Um, Carolina had to hop off, and I think we lost Donziger too, and he was having a little trouble logging in. So um, I don't know if he'll be back on, but I wanted to give a shout out to her because she's um not only from Ecuador um but also heavily involved in the indigenous, or I'm sorry, the um the labor movement. So maybe Lynn might want to connect with hers. Um, Stephen was very happy to meet her last time. 
Um, I want you brought Aaron with uh, us, so you're connected to us. So you're you're connected, Aaron, right? Yeah, no, I, what, what he's saying is that uh, Carolina is also an organizer for the United Teachers of Dade and is actively fighting Ron DeSantis and his crazy stuff. Okay, yeah, good. and all the healthcare, like she, she's major with healthcare, and she, I met Aaron through Carolina, their teamsters together. Um, so just two quick points that I was going to bring up with, um, with Stephen. But um, definitely worth bringing up. I wanted to ask him again his take on um, the constitutional amendments because that's how Ecuador won their last victory, and that's um, something that is, I think, a really big tool that can be used not only for labor um, to create more jobs, but also um, just leverage and getting out the vote and just part of the puzzle. And I did want to mention um, the child labor laws that are being stripped right now. Oh yeah, I, can't I, I did. Want, yeah. Thank you. Um, I can't remember. There's one other state. It's a Midwestern state. I can't remember which um, that was lowering its uh, its protections. But now Florida is following suit. There's a bill. I thought it had passed. Iowa. Iowa. Thank you, Dorothy. Um, Yeah. So Florida right now wants to strip a century old um, labor protection for kids. They want to let 16 and 17 year olds, maybe just 17 year olds work past 11 o'clock and beyond eight hours on school nights and beyond 30 hours a week during the school year. And to say that it's to like help the families reach their financial goals and create opportunities, but really it's to compensate for all the immigration reforms and all the migrant workers that they're losing and they have nobody to do the work. And also Purdue and Tyson are under investigation right now because you know, with factory farms, journalists and reporters, the cameras are not allowed in to see how the animals are treated and what goes on in these factory farms. So nobody knows that there's little children working there in like crazy conditions. So there's an investigation right now. But yeah, our crackdown on the immigrants are now turning to um, this uh, stripping of child labor laws, which is just ironic because um, we're trying to pass an abortion amendment to protect abortion rights. And yet they care so much about children <laughs> that, you know, I'll let that speak for itself. Thank you. Yeah, really. Well, that's, they're, say, they're, uh, they're worried uh, about their labor force. Having grown up, Aaron, with, um, I worked one of my earliest jobs uh, for an employer that wanted me to stay till two in the morning. My dad was the uh, Central Labor Council president for the AFL-CIO. So at the second night it occurred, he called me up there and he's, what are you doing past 11? I said, I'm working like my boss told me to. He's I can't say it because I guess we're on the progressive network, so I can't say exactly what he said. But he said, basically, hand your boss the phone. And I was home for <laughs> five minutes. Um, he started to file an FLSA complaint in an unfair labor practice. And that's when I found out that it doesn't really matter how much leverage the boss thinks he has above you uh, economically. At the end of the day, um, there are laws put in place to, to protect you. It's sad to see that Florida is going to go the route of a few other states that are trying to remove the basic social safety nets uh, to prevent, you know, kids from losing their legs at the age of six. God, horrible. Uh, Dorothy, then Myla? And, you know, they're having these kids work overnight shifts, cleaning uh, very dangerous equipment and using very dangerous chemicals. And uh, one of them got made a lot of coverage in the New York Times about it. Um, I, while we're talking about lawyers, I just want to give a shout out to uh, another lawyer who got railroaded, and that was Lynn Stewart, who. Um, Defended the blind sheik and a bunch of other. She, her specialty was was defending, uh, you know, people who are who were accused of crimes who didn't have money to pay pay for a lawyer. And she was an incredible woman. I had the pleasure of meeting her. And uh, when they sentenced her for 
two years on a bogus charge of communicating with the blind sheik or communicating something he gave her to give to somebody. And she said, oh, two years, I can do that standing on my head. They resentenced her to 10 years and she came very close to dying. They let her and on uh, compassionate release just before she's about to die of cancer. And so horrific. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Myla? Hi. Uh, well, I just wanted to say that um, Demacio Lopez had to leave us. He he had hoped to uh, have a, a few more words before he had to leave. Um, but I wanted to make sure I don't think that he was on when Dennis was on. And I'm sharing right now um, some of his work. Not only has he been working on the um, Uranium Film Festival, but he's also a tremendous organizer working on um, banning uranium weapons. And, um, and he's been working on this issue since the 1990s. And um, well, and we'll have him back. I, yes, we'll absolutely have him back. Thank you for that. And um, let's see, I want to close this now. And uh, okay. I want, but I'm sorry, I'm confused because I'm working. Uh, okay. Trying to see what I'm showing you. But anyway, yes, I'm so glad that he was able to come and also that Anna Rondon was able to join us. Yes, thank you for bringing yeah. us such great people and we, we will definitely have them back. We still and have I'm, 42 people with, with us right. approaching and, and, and And I'm hoping that they will be able to connect with Dennis and I wanted them to connect not only with Dennis but with, um, with Stephen Donziger, so. Thank you. Excellent. All right. Very good. Um, um, we're approaching the 420 hour. If you want to uh, get. I'll, def I'll definitely follow up on that for sure. Oh, I'm Dennis, you're still with us. That's yeah, great. I'm still, yeah, I'm still with you. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm invisible, I'm, I'm, but I'm here. Well, if but you I'm want to see anything in this, just, yeah. Well, what a phenomenal, geez, what a phenomenal gathering again. Uh, we're approaching the 420 hour. We got Tatanka. If you want to get another word in edgewise, uh, now's the time. Um, it's, it's it's just for a future conversation because we talk about rights of nature. I don't know if we have to start thinking about rights of cosmos. Where does nature end? What about space? What is happening above us? Um, Steve talked about, you know, selling rights underneath. We have to think about the rivers and the oceans. And, you know, uh, it, it would be a reasonable thing to say that the, that this, the, that out in space, we should have a conversation about commons we're not the only people in this in this solar system and who has the right to move back and forth peacefully things like that it's it's a stretch okay but we have to talk about it because i mean we're writing this um progressive government in waiting with you know 15 cabinet positions at the romero institute in the circle of 100 and eight agency positions for each of these things and we're talking about space and how do we legally wrap our 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 head uh around this so um, just to continue that conversation. Wonderful. Thank you. For that. Can, okay. I, can I just <clears throat> one final word here? I, I yeah, want to agree with uh, Mr. Donziger that uh, Dennis Sheehan is uh, really among the top uh, couple of uh, courageous attorneys on the face of the earth, along with Mr. Donziger. I appreciate it. I want to get uh, to Danny on that uh, suit. Uh, I and I. I guess, what do I want to say? Oh, I don't know. I forgot. <laughs> well, because it's 420 and you're stoned out. There you go. Thank you. Now I know where I need to go. Listen, you guys, 
This has absolutely been fantastic, Aaron. You're just a terrific uh, piece of this puzzle. Uh, I don't know if you've met Andrea Miller and Ray McClendon directly, but we need to we need to put that loop going and connect all these communities. This has been Indigenous People's Day. Our hearts are sick with the violence in the Middle East. It's horrifying what's going on there. Simultaneously with Ukraine, I mean, it's taken our um, uh, um, uh, eye off this other horrendous uh, humanitarian uh, crisis. We have to worry about our species, ladies and gentlemen. This has been a phenomenal uh, a gathering. Thank you, Steve Caruso, Mike Hirsch, Wendy Lederman, our team. Uh, great to see you, Dorothy. So many others of the rest of you. Uh, and we'll be back again next week. Okay. And here's my my shirt. I've been wearing Cocapelli. I got it on the each at Venice. Uh, we love you all. See you next week. Thank you so much. And um, this couldn't have been better once again. Take care and no nukes. Adios. Thanks, Lago. Si se puede.